a podcast. Did your radio show get canceled? Fire, fire, fire. Low down and filthy, but the discipline is on point. Schooled myself, made my own dojo. A cold flow with the whole dose of soul. Maintain composure, even in fury. An anomaly, properties under... This week on The Pete the Planner Show, we got a lot of stuff for you. You know, this show is about answering your money questions, and there were some pretty big questions that needed answered this week, and so I'm bringing on experts. Not that I'm not an expert. I'm a little bit of an expert. I'm kind of a big deal. No, I'm not. Anyway, here's who we got on the show this week. Daniel Crosby, Dr. Daniel Crosby. He is a behavioral economist. He will join us talking about his new book, The Behavioral Investor. Uh, And then we're also gonna talk to Annie Nova, who is a reporter for CNBC, who just wrote a great piece about the realities of the student loan forgiveness program, the public service student loan forgiveness program. You will not want to miss either one of those conversations. But first, we are here to do what we do on that sh- this show, is to answer your questions. So if you ever want to email us a question, we'll do our best to answer it. It's askpete, askpete at petetheplanner.com. That is askpete at petetheplanner.com. And we got one this week from Fran, uh, not my producer, Frank, but Fran, uh, dear Pete, I was so encouraged to read your column, Setting more, Settling Mortgage Can Solidify Retirement. It reiterated what I believe may be the best course for my husband and me for retirement planning. To put it bluntly, we have no retirement savings and we are both 66 years old. In short, we had a uh, business which uh, went belly up in 2006. I had to take a $9 an hour job and my husband worked some but had no permanent full-time job for three years. We owed a lot of money and we were in Dutch to the IRS. You don't hear that term a lot anymore. Uh, Until we refinanced our house in 2014 and paid them off. Yes, we are way behind the eight ball. At present, I decided to retire in April of this year and find a part-time job, and my husband plans to continue to work until he is 70. Soon after I applied for Social Security benefits, I changed my mind and decided to continue to work as long as I could. When I applied for Social Security, the rep told me that my husband could apply for and receive half of my benefit and still receive his full benefit at 70. We did that and we both continue to work. Now we receive almost $2,000 a month in Social Security benefits in addition to our pay, which is $6,100 a month net. That's great. So far, I have banked the benefits and we have $10,000 in savings. I strongly believe it would be best to use the Social Security benefit money starting now to pay off our house in three years so we can enter retirement without a house or rent payment. My husband will receive a pension. He works for the government. Uh, But other than Social Security, we will have no other income after retirement. We could even afford to contribute to 401ks and still live comfortably besides the house we only live, uh, only owe on, uh, besides the house is what we only owe uh, and plus two cars. One professional I spoke with said my husband should go ahead and file for Social Security benefits and we should invest all the money. After he showed me what we'd pay in taxes, there's no way to know how to compare that to what we would be earning on the investment. If my husband waits until 70, at least, he is making 8% on the benefit money. Well, I don't know uh, what inflation will do to that. Okay, so the question is, from Fran, sorry, there's a lot of background. Uh, Are we headed in the right direction? I plan to talk to a CFP recommended to me, but I always appreciate your good level-headed advice if you have time and inclination. 
Also, thinking of being advised by someone with a level head is disconcerting. Yeah, avid fan, Fran. Ryan, all right, so here's what we got. For, thanks for saying you're an avid fan. I don't know if you said that so I'd answer your question, but if you did, it worked, because I'm answering your question. Here's the thing, this is the perfect scenario in which I think um, redirecting that social security income, which you've been using to accumulate your $10,000, now is a good time to stop accumulating that and use it to pay off your mortgage. You are not, friend, gonna have a lot of money at retirement. You just aren't, you said it yourself, you were behind the eight ball. How do you retire successfully? It's what we talked about last week on this show. How do you retire successfully when you don't have a lot of money. You create, this is the answer by the way, you create a scenario in which you don't need a lot of money. Every time I say that phrase, I need to remind you that yes, that is cute turn of phrase and the semantics make it seem like uh, I'm being cute. I'm not, it's just true. If you don't have a mortgage, a large portion of your uh, monthly expense demand goes away. You'll have, you're gonna have less income once you retire because your, your working dollars are contributing to that $6,100 a month. Get rid of it. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I was gonna say I'm just being honest, but it makes it seem like I'm generally not honest. Uh, I, I don't like the idea that at 66, the, you should take a bunch of income and then, then invest it so that your rate of return outpaces the 8% that you would get uh, with a social security increase You know, if you wait till you're 70. I just totally disagree with that, that you were somehow forced to become an investor at 66 with the hope that the market or whatever instrument you're in continues its, its upward path all the while you're paying more on your taxes because you're making too much money in work income. If your husband were to take his full amount now, uh, again, he would uh, be paying a lot in taxes. It would be based on the idea that he would have to then invest that money and have it pay off in the end. And then the, the third idea here too is um, you need to consider how healthy the both of you are. You didn't mention your health in your email to me, and not that you should have, but it's something that you need to consider. If your husband is, for some reason, uh, not where he wants to be from a health perspective, maybe consider it. But if he's healthy, wait, just wait. I, I think taking more money now would be a big mistake. I think it'd be a tax nightmare. I think you would be giving up the 8% benefit that grows every year that you delay taking Social Security. Uh, and I think also uh, the speculation that the market is gonna keep going up just, just doesn't make sense to me. All right, so there you go. Who knows what a CFP is gonna tell you? They'll probably, hopefully, tell you the same thing. Here's the thing. Uh, we, I employ CFPs, I think CFPs are great, I, I, and uh, I don't have a CFP, uh, but I'll, I'll say this, uh, CFPs will look at every aspect of the situation. They will look at every corner of the situation. Sometimes CFPs are clouded, just like anybody else, we all have biases, by their ability to create investment returns for you, and sometimes CFPs or any other financial professional will be influenced by their own willingness to take risk, right? Why that matters is uh, that's great that their knowledge base allows them to take more risk, 
but it's your money, so your money has to be invested at your risk tolerance. If, if any pr investment professional looks at your exact same situation and says, well, you know what you should do is take the money now so I can invest it, pay the taxes, it doesn't matter, and we're gonna forego that 8% raise a year that you would get if you otherwise left it alone until 70, they are suggesting that they are smarter than the uncertain nature of the market and math. And I'm uncomfortable with that. Uh, and I, would, I wouldn't question their motives, but I would question their biases. Everyone has biases. Um, but part of their plan involves you giving them money and then paying them money to invest your money. And that's why I think it's, and it's not a conflict of interest, but it's, it's not the bias you want. Does that make sense? A lot of great uh, emails this week about the four-part series in USA Today about being broke at 50 and seeing what's next. I'll give you a sneak peek of next week's column. Uh, next week's column involves an inheritance, uh, an inheritance. A woman inherited quite a bit of money and she's worked her whole life and she just wants to shut it down and never work again and just live off the inheritance. The problem is she has two middle school aged children. So she wants to know what she should do. So that is next week's uh, USA Today column. So if you want to email me and you want to be on this show, your question on the show, email me, askpete at petetheplanner.com. If you want to talk to me, you could be on our podcast. So go to petetheplanner.com slash podcast and uh, I'll talk through your situation on the show. We've got some really great podcast guests coming up uh, in the next few weeks. Subscribe to the podcast uh, wherever you get your podcast. Just search out Pete the Planner Show and you will find that podcast. Coming up after the break, Annie Nova. That's a great name. CNBC writer. She's next on the Pete the Planner Show. I'm Pete the Planner. Question the right of any man. The voice his opinion as strongly as any can. But then again, many men are citizens of their own little world, so they ain't really fitting in. I'm in the background blending in. Camouflage by the scenery, but I'm a champion. Revamp the camp again. Put down the stamp again. Back on the Pete the Planner show. Uh, one of the questions I've gotten the most frequently over the last five, six, seven, eight years uh, it has been. Uh, is this student loan forgiveness thing real? The public service student loan forgiveness. I get that question from teachers and all the people that serve the public and they say, my goal is to pay, make my payments for 10 years and then have all my debts magically washed away. Do you think I should do it? My answer has always been, yeah, but you better dot your I's and cross your T's because if you get to that point and it's not forgiven, you're in trouble. Will a recent report on CNBC by Annie Nova uh, tells us that boy, my gut feeling may have been right. Annie Nova joins us now. Hello, Annie. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you? I'm, I'm great. Uh, other than when I read your uh, article, I uh, spit out uh, whatever I was drinking at the time. 96 people out of the nearly 30,000 that applied were uh, approved for student loan forgiveness. 96 out of 30,000. How many times did you have to check the math on that? Because that seems just stupid. Yeah, I know. Those numbers are pretty discouraging, particularly to public servants all over the country 
who've been paying their loans on time and hoping um, that their loans will be forgiven as the government promised them it, it would be. Um, so I didn't have to do too much math because the Department of Ed actually put out the data. Um, it was, uh, for a while, they were not um, disclosing how many people had been approved and had their forgiveness and had their student debt actually discharged. They were just reporting how many people applied. So finally, I believe about two weeks ago now, they, uh, they gave that number that 96 people, uh, 96 public servants have had their loans erased under the program. Obviously, the, um, the numbers are discouraging and are a sign that student loan servicers, who um, the companies that are responsible for guiding people to the consumer protection and explaining them to them what they have to do to qualify, are um, not doing their jobs correctly. And a big part of this, the program's 10 years old as of last year. So the first people really eligible for the forgiveness, they're the people that had to come to Jesus moment last year of like, okay, does it work or not? And, and, and those are the people that didn't work. But what's happened since then is there's been nine other years and then into this year where people may not have done the right things to stay qualified. What are some things that are tripping people up that are making them uh, you know, unqualified for this program? Okay, um, for sure. I, I will also say that, as discouraging as those numbers are, some people who, some people have pointed out that it is the first year, and obviously the numbers should be different. But because there was so much confusion about how this program works, and it's the first year people could apply, um, the number was low. But some people say it will, it will. You will see more and more people get forgiveness. So um, people should definitely not see these numbers and decide not to pursue it. Because right now, uh, public service loan forgiveness is written into the law, and uh, people have a right, if they fit all of the requirements, which I'll get to, to apply for and get this forgiveness. So there are a bunch of kind of wonky requirements. Um, I think they're less complicated than they're made out to be sometimes. Um, it's just making sure that you fit these, you know, three or four requirements. So you need to uh, be in a public service job, which... That definition, um, it can be subjective, so you should definitely fill out an employer certification form, which you can find online very easily. You send that in to the Department of Ed with all of your employer's information, and they will let you know if you actually work for what they consider a public service job. But vaguely, if you work for the government on the state level or a federal level, you will absolutely uh, be qualified. Okay. If you work for a 501c3 nonprofit, you'll also qualify. And teachers? Uh, Do teachers also, typically yeah. qualify? All public school teachers will qualify. Okay. Sorry about that. And then, um, yes, actually, um, teachers are the part of the reason this program was created was with teachers in mind who tend to not make a lot but need to get a lot of schooling. Um, in order to be able to do their job. So then also in terms of the loan type that you have to have, this is one thing that's really tripped people up. You can't have, if you have a federal family education loan, you will not qualify for public service loan forgiveness with that loan. But you can fairly easily consolidate your loan into a, a qualifying loan, which is the direct, the direct federal loan. Um, many people will have direct loans, but if you don't, if you have one of that, it's an older loan, if you have the federal family education loan, you need to consolidate to a direct loan. So make sure you have a direct loan. You can also check with your servicer and confirm that you have a direct loan. 
Um, so it's the loan type, it's the employer type, and then it is also how you're repaying your loans. Because the Department of Ed student loan system is famously complicated, there are 14 ways to repay your student loans that people can pick from. You need to fall into one of the four, about four different income-driven repayment plans. So you should also check with your servicer that the repayment plan you're in qualifies for public service loan forgiveness, but it has to be an income-driven repayment plan, not an extended repayment plan or not a graduated repayment plan. It has to be an income-driven. If you fit those three requirements, you should be on track for public service loan forgiveness. We're talking to CNBC reporter Annie Nova about the Public Service Student Loan Forgiveness Program. I feel like there was talk in the last year that this program itself could be in danger. Uh, when you wrote this story, is that something you considered? Yes. So in Trump's budget proposal that came out earlier this year, um, there was it was proposed that pretty much the, the program would be cut because um, of a few other different changes to the law. Pretty much public service loan forgiveness would not be an option for people anymore. It is unclear how that would affect people who've been on track for it. Uh, most advocates say that the government couldn't decide that all of the people who were, say, eight years into their timeline could all of a sudden not be eligible for it because a lot of people made their career choices. Um, with the consideration of this public service loan forgiveness. So as scary as that proposal was, I would say there are two reasons not to be afraid. One is that we don't know if it's going to happen. The program actually was created in 2007 by George W. Bush. So it is a program that has bipartisan support, and it's unlikely that legislators would approve of changes that would get rid of public service loan forgiveness. And then secondly, for people who've been on their way, they might have some recourse, even if, in the rare chance, the program was scrapped. But it sounds like, from your article, or from what I read in your article, there are people that uh, irreversibly took the wrong path with this, but then, like you mentioned, uh, maybe a consolidation can save the day and get you back on the path. Does it seem like many of those disqualified stories that, that you found in your reporting, um, obviously it sounds like those people are, are people that could not solve the problem with consolidation, they permanently ruined their eligibility? So I would say that in, um, in the story I wrote recently, both people are definitely uh, fighting. If you had the wrong loan type, it depends when you figured it out. If you figured out one year into your 10 years of repayment that you have a wrong loan type, all of the payments you made under the wrong loan type will not qualify. So if you were one year in, now you're starting over, and really you got the forgiveness in 10, in 11 years if everything went well. Um, so that's true. If, if you find out earlier, it's better. So yeah. I would suggest everyone go and make sure. Um, yeah, so if you were not, if you didn't have the right requirements, it, the time you were paying your loans under the wrong requirements will not qualify. I'll mention one other thing before we let you go. What I found in the field, in practice, another consideration is people go into one field uh, as part of the public service student loan forgiveness program, and then they realize, hey, you know, I don't like doing this. I want to change careers, and to do that means getting out of public service, and then their plan, their strategy to get out of student loan debt is completely messed up. And uh, I'm curious, uh, I'm just waxing poetic at this point, how that will affect us going forward. But. Uh, Annie, thank you for your reporting on this. It was eye-opening. We sent it to our entire team who educate people on this stuff all the time, and it, it, it's scary, and I hope the numbers get better. 
Yeah, I do too. Thanks so much. Good luck, everyone. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, all right, coming up after the break, uh, we're going to talk to Dr. Daniel Crosby about his new book, The Behavioral Investor. That's all next on The Pete the Planner Show. I'm Pete the Planner. Hi, I'm internet podcaster Peter Dunn. You may know me as Pete the Planner. You hear me on the radio and on your podcasting device, but did you know you can also see me on YouTube? That's right, we have a YouTube channel and we call it PeteThePlanner.tv. We ask you to subscribe so you can catch great shows like Pete's Eats and this here podcast with drawings. But the drawings are made with a video camera. Subscribe today. Back on the Pizza Planner show. So you know uh, when the market goes uh, wacky, sometimes your body feels a certain way and you're thinking, am I really physically reacting to the market? Like, yeah, I'm upset, uh, but my body feels sweaty and I'm mad and there's actually a reason for that. Uh, and to help us understand the uh, physiology, the neurology, and the sociology behind how we react to investing is New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Daniel Crosby, whose new book, The Behavioral Investor, comes out next Tuesday. Doctor, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Great to be here. So um, how is that for a setup, uh, the, the, uh, not only for when your book is coming out, but what the market is doing right now? And... Uh, our bodies actually react to this stuff. How is that possible? Well, it's, it's interesting because one of the themes of the book is that things that have prepared us well to survive in other contexts actually make us really bad investors. So one of the things that I talk about is how, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, there were many other human species. There were Neanderthals. There was a group called the Hobbits in Indonesia. Uh, and these guys are all gone. And the biggest reason they are is because they were not as loss averse as we are. So what scientists have found is that we were the most fearful, uh, the most scared of all the human species. And so this made us great risk managers in the context of not running out of food or not getting uh, eaten by a tiger. Uh, but it makes us really bad investors. And so in a very real sense, all of us are here today uh, because our, our ancient great, great, greats were chicken. And so we're all evolved to be kind of fearful of days like we had yesterday and today in the market. Yeah, so what you're suggesting then is uh, our survival instincts kick in and we're thinking, I got burned, I don't want to do that again. And And what we think is the best way to do that is to avoid it altogether by not being in the market. Is that is that what you're suggesting? Well, it is. And, you know, one of the things that we found and talked about in the book is that there's actually a place in your brain that physically encodes and holds on to uh, scary, traumatic things so that the next time you encounter them, they're brought right back to the surface. So there is a part uh, in the listeners' brains, if they've been investing for this long, that's called, you know, March of 2009. Yeah. And so when we have a day, uh, you know, a day like we're having this week, that that file gets uploaded again and you go, oh, I've I've seen this movie before. But the fact is that you haven't. I mean, you know, no, you never walk through the same stream twice with financial markets. Uh, and yet we are our bodies and our minds are, are attuned to really hang on to fear in a very profound way and even in a physical way. 
Now, how so you're in the investment business, and and I feel like at some point in time, back when I was in the investment business, there was this thing where I just constantly was trying to prepare my clients for days like this week. It's like, hey, when this happens, it'll be okay. How does that actually work? How does a person prepare themselves to disagree with what their brain would naturally tell them to do? I mean, what's the science behind that? Well, you know, one thing is is the very thing that you talked about. You know, if your advisor has not been uh, preparing you for days like we're having this week, they haven't candidly been been doing their job uh, because, you know, happiness is reality, uh, our expectations minus reality. And so we need to expect that there will indeed be be days just like the, the ones that we just lived through. And so, yeah, a big part of it is managing expectations because science shows us again and again that a large, painful, expected event hurts less than a much smaller surprise. So anyway, we hate to be surprised. And so a big part of this is becoming a student of financial history and working with your advisor to make sure that she is preparing you for the reality of this because we've had 23 uh, 23 dips of 5% plus uh, in just the last handful of years. So this kind of stuff happens to all, all the time. Uh, we need to learn to expect it. What do you think uh, the interest rate increases are sort of in the news these days and our reality? What do you think that's going to do to investors? Because uh, well, other than they're going to watch the market suffer for it, do you think we're going to get back to that time where that super conservative investor is, you know, pounding down the door of their bank, waiting for their 4% money market uh, account to, to be available again? Do you, do you feel like that's where we're going? Like what's going to happen psychologically to that conservative investor who's been waiting for their time to come again? Well, I, I hope that that won't happen because it, it demonstrates a pretty under, poor understanding of how inflation works. Yeah. Uh, because if you look at historical inflation, it's been right around three, three and a half percent. So, you know, uh, investment returns in this three to four percent range aren't really anything to write home about. You're, you're not losing money, but you're not really gaining any either. Uh, so it's been interesting to see this pointed to as the sort of ostensible cause for the volatility of the last few days, when the fact is that no one knows. I mean, one of the things that I talk about in the book that we're so prone to is overconfidence. And there's a very specific type of overconfidence called overprecision uh, that leads us to think we can more exactly pinpoint a cause or a future state than we can. So I think uh, that's what we're seeing here is, is overprecision in action uh, once again people really trying to make sense out of the uh, nonsensical in many cases. And A, I'm not sure that it's the case. And, and B, I hope that investors are smart enough uh, to not think that, you know, three or four percent guaranteed is any kind of uh, any kind of special case or anything to be sought after. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you've been in the business long enough. Uh, your dream that that is the case, sadly, is, is not reality because Every day, people gripe about their inability to get, quote unquote, higher fixed rate of returns. What other areas of our lives 
sort of emulate our feelings with money. I, I tend to think from a behavioral standpoint, the way we treat our money is similar to diet and exercise. Is that the best comparison or is there another sort of phenomenon within our, our daily activity? I, I think that diet and exercise, are, are, are it's a well I go to quite a bit because it's similar in the sense that uh, many of us know what we ought to be doing and, and very few of us are doing it, right? So, you know, when I go to the airport, I was in five states last week. And so when I go to the airport and I buy a Cinnabon instead of a salad, it's not because, you know, I think that I I lack an understanding of the nutritional value of a Cinnabon relative to a salad. It's because I'm, I'm tired, I'm stressed out, and I just don't care in that moment. And I think that most investors know that, you know, weeks like this that are volatile, that are scary, are potentially precisely the time that we should be buying or at the very least staying the course. Uh, And yet it's very, very difficult. And so, you know, the people that capitulated yesterday, the people that sold out, I don't think they did it because they thought, um, you know, cognitively, rationally that it was the best thing to do. They were just freaked out. And so this is where the importance of uh, nutritional coaches and you know personal trainers and financial advisors comes in. It's someone to uh, hold our hand through the fire when we know what we should be doing, but but doing it is so very difficult. We got about a minute left with Dr. Daniel Crosby. Uh, Doc, help me understand: Is there any data out there that suggests people are getting better at not? capitulating? Is there any data that suggests that when these events are going on, advisors are successful in educating their people to chill out? There is evidence to show that more and more people are working with advisors. And there's also evidence to show that people who work with advisors do uh, statistically significantly better than those who do not for behavioral reasons. It's not that these advisors are, you know, many Wall Street wizards that are putting their folks in the highest flying stocks. They're just keeping them from um, making idiotic mistakes at the wrong time. Uh, But the good news, I think the good news for all of us who are, you know, doing things like uh, listening to you and taking your advice or reading my books, are that human nature changes very, very slowly and that there will always be people making bad choices. Uh, And our ability to profit long term and outperform long term really hinges on us not being more, not being smarter necessarily, but being more disciplined. And so the fact that there are sort of unwashed masses of investors out there making poor decisions all the time is actually very much uh, to our benefit over the long run if we can be the disciplined ones. Dr. Daniel Crosby, New York Times bestseller, new book, The Behavioral Investor, uh, is released on Tuesday. Pick it up at Amazon.com or wherever you buy your books. Doc, thank you once again for joining us on the show. Coming up after the break, more of the Pete the Planner show. I am Pete the Planner. Every day living through the peace of my soul, I remain whole even in the middle of the pain. Even though my life has the rain, I still remain sane, writing and creating for my life. And my pen is my sword given by the Lord, and I use it to fight the tides of restriction. Sometimes I'm conflicted by myself looking at the trees too much and can't see the forest. Enemies shall inherit the earth, and I want to inherit something, something other than the high blood pressure and diabetes. So work is what I gotta do. Stay true to my enemy and water the trees that I sing from and look out for the lumberjacks. Running with the gale force wind at my back, swift and enduring, I remain calm. 
swift and enduring, I remain calm. Swift and enduring, I remain calm. Back on the Pete the Planner show, this week's biggest waste of money of the week is... Before we get there, uh, go buy Daniel Crosby's book. Dr. Daniel Crosby was just uh, on the show, New York Times bestseller. I think it's the second time he's been on a show. He was on the last time when he wrote his first book. And his second book, go buy that. To, of course, Annie Nova from CNBC was great. That is a shocking number. 96 out of 30,000 applicants for public service student loan forgiveness were approved. 96, 96 out of 30,000 initial applicants were approved. The other, here comes the math, 29,904 people were denied. 29,904 people out of 30,000 were denied for public student loan forgiveness. All right, this week's biggest waste of money of the week, three things. You know, I, when, I, when I search out these things, I'm like, oh, I'm going to find something. But then I found out things those are all so stupid that I have to share them with you. The first is the IRL screen blocking glasses. Hmm. Uh, screens are everywhere at the store, on the street, and in your home. Sometimes they show valuable content. Mostly they show ads. IRL screen blocking glasses make them disappear. Kinda. By using horizontally polarized optics, they block the light emitted by LCD and LED screens, making them appear as though they're turned off. The squarest design is derived from the magic pair of ad-blocking glasses in the 1988 cult classic, They Live. And as an added bonus, the polarization means they double as UV-blocking sunglasses. The price? It's, it's a Kickstarter, of course. It's pre-order. These aren't a real thing yet. You have to be part of the Kickstarter. $49. So here's the thing. I like nice sunglasses. I like polarized sunglasses. I don't like multi-hundreds dollars worth of sunglasses. But for $49, I don't understand why you feel the need as you're walking down the street of a city and there's a TV on in the, a shop window. How does that inconvenience you that you see what's on there? And if you're at home, you're like, oh, no, these are for home use. Why are you wearing sunglasses inside? What, are you too cool? Like, what's, there's no reason for this. This is a problem that does not exist. At any point in time that you're wearing sunglasses, there's no reason for you to block a television. Why do you care? Walk past it. Do you not have bigger problems? That is a tremendous waste of money. But not as much as our next item. The Spalwart... Marathon Trail Low Sneaker, manufactured in the same plant in Europe where Spalwart's, Spalwart, terrible name, uh, where its founders discovered abandoned machinery and shoe molds, the Italian brand sneakers resurrect traditional shoemaking techniques. The Marathon Trail Low is made using a lightweight perforated mesh with calfskin lining, and each pair has premium Italian suede and quick-drying airbag textile uppers, individually vulcanized rubber soles, and are finished with heavy cotton laces. Okay, so they're trail running shoes. Okay, these shoes are designed so you can go out on a mountainous trail, on a hilly trail, but when I, every time I hear trail, what's the first word that comes to mind? Mud, right? You can look, look at me and you can tell I'm not a, I'm not a trail runner. And it's like, oh, is that Pete the trail runner? No, it's not. Have I trail, run on trails? I have. And what do I know about those trails? They're often muddy. Why? Because 
wet stuff makes dirt muddy. Why would you run in $250 Italian throwback trail sneakers? Like, yes, you need good support. And, and by the way, these are based on res, uh, the resurrecting traditional shoemaking techniques. I want technology. I don't want a Da Vinci sneaker. I want a, a modern technology. I want some space age polymer or something in there, some carbon fiber that I'm not upset if it gets dirty. This has got Italian suede and calfskin lining. Do you know how much uh, your feet would blister with calfskin lining in a running shoe? Have they not thought of this? I think I might be extra grumpy today. And finally, <laughs> the third biggest waste of money of the week. Wonder if we just turn the entire show to a 40-year-old bald ginger griping about stuff. I think that's what it's turned into today. Uh, all right, this one's called the Hover Surf Hover Bike. We don't have the tech for Star Wars style speeder bikes, but until that gets here, the Hover Surf Hover Bike is as close as you can get. Based in San Jose, Hover Surf's Hover Bike is an all electric four rotor flying contraption made of carbon fiber. See, carbon fiber is space age, y'all. Uh, and is controlled by a simple two joystick flight system. The hover bike qualifies as an ultralight under FAA rules and doesn't require a pilot's license. Oh boy. Although you'll definitely want to take some training courses before you set off for the wild blue yonder. Hover Surf claims 13 miles of range and a top speed of around 40 miles per hour. This is a nightmare. I mean, this is a nightmare. Which charge times... Um, of two and a half hours, right? Uh, Hoversurf is taking orders right now, and you'll need a $10,000 deposit to get in line. It is $150,000. So run to your couch cushions right now, dig deep past the, the Cheeto crumbs, and grab yourself $10,000 for your deposit to, to buy a $150,000 hover bike. Let me describe what it is, what it looks like. So you guys know what a drone, like a consumer drone looks like now. It's a it's just like a, the size of a pizza box typically, and it's got four blades on the corners and they spin and it creates lift and there you go. I, I, I should be a physicist. Um, that's what this is, except that it's a lot bigger and there's uh, essentially what looks like a motorcycle seat in the middle with two joysticks. But uh, let me tell you this, I, I am not a professional drone pilot, but my son Ted and I uh, played a, a crane game like a Dave and Buster's and because I'm so good at the crane game, I won him a little miniature drone that we were flying around. And so it looks the same. I mean, it's miniature. I mean, it's the size of a deck of playing cards. So let me tell you the danger in this. So the drone falls, I go to pick it up. Ted hits his, uh, the joystick and it about cuts my hand off. Like almost cut my hand off with a Dave and Buster's micro drone, right? This is the size of like a Geo Metro. This is a huge, hundreds of pound piece of equipment with open blades, like four helicopter blades on the end that can either A, cut someone else, or B, by the looks of this thing, I'm, I'm staring at it right now, you can, you can learn more at hoversurf.com, I assume. Your foot, your stinking foot is like three feet away from spinning blades that are keeping you in the air for 13 miles at 45 miles an hour. 
by the way, if you can only go 13 miles, this is a math problem. You can only go 13 miles, but it goes 45 miles an hour. How? Uh, do you, how many, uh, uh, how many miles could you go? I don't know how the math problem works. I ran out of math. That's the thing. It's the end of the week. I'm out of math. This show's not about math. If you want to be on this show, you can't be, but if you want your question to be on this show, email me, ask Pete at petetheplanner.com. That's ask Pete at petetheplanner.com. Uh, or I'll write about you in USA Today. I'll write about your question. I will change your name so your friends and family don't know that it is you. In fact, as we're sitting here recording today's show, my mother-in-law is in uh, uh, California this week and she just saw my column in USA Today and just texted me and said she read it. Uh, but she said to me like, I read it for the first time. What does that mean? Does that mean for the last five years she's never read my column? Uh, I don't know. There's a lot there. It could have been passive aggressive. Anyway, <laughs> that's it for this week's show. Uh, please, if you caught, if you if you missed any of this show and you didn't catch it, listen to it on the podcast. Go to PeteThePlanner.com to find the podcast. Or of course, find it on iTunes. We had Annie Nova, a journalist from CNBC, and Dr. Daniel Crosby, a behavioral economist, who just released uh, his new book. He actually releases this coming Tuesday, but you can pre-order on Amazon right now. He does great work, so check it out. Whew, that's a lot. Email me, askpete at petetheplanner.com. That's it. I'm sending you good vibes because good vibes are all that's in my budget. This is the Pete the Planner Show, and I'm Pete the Planner. This is for information purposes only. It's not the financial planning device. Consult a financial divisor. Magnificence in an instance, I can make you dance, cry, or love, fly as a dove, released from Everest, the fresh is fresh, and you can call me E.T., word to John Tesh, let me bless this harmonic presentation, it's amazing, so amazing, I'm the reason, uh, salutations, I bring you love, trying greetings from a faraway land, I am the soul controller, put the remote down and let me take control, you're now a part of my zone, so enjoy yourself, Love Tron can restore your health. I bring you greetings, uh, salutations. How you doing? And is that how y'all say it? The tinkling of the keys is an homage to the little, little star. I sojourn over poetic descriptions of sound and travel to my other world. Out of this world, spaceship on my arm took me home. Filled by the ink and the megabytes and the hypertext transfer protocol stronger than the Skynet and the Terminator. I push faders into warp speed, glide with ease, creating a breeze they call a black hole, event horizon, no rear view concerns. This I adjourn, and beats I burn, this I adjourn, and beats I burn. Salutations, I bring you love, trying greetings from a faraway land. I am the soul controller. Put the remote down and let me take control. You're now a part of my zone, so enjoy yourself. Love, try, can restore your health. I bring you greetings. Uh, salutations, how you doing? And is that how y'all say it?